0: From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Mexican-Americans make up the majority of the labor force sustaining California's wine industry, not to mention a big chunk of the state's overall population. And yet, we only make up something like 1% of winery owners. That may be changing as a new generation of Mexican-American families have established themselves in the business. So we'll talk with and about the Mexican-Americans reshaping California's wine industry, examine the challenges that new winemakers face, and look at how the market for wine is changing to satisfy the demands of the state's ever more diverse population. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. For decades, Mexican-Americans have been the backbone of viticulture here in the state, working the vines that produce some of the finest wines in the world. But up the food chain, a vanishingly small number of Mexican-Americans have been able to become the people making the wine and running the wineries. Yesterday, as I prep for this show, I dropped by a local wine shop in Oakland. I know this job is hard. And I asked the folks... Do you have any Mexican-American winemakers in here? They didn't, and granted, it's a tiny shop, but they were also kind of flummoxed by the question. I kind of got the impression that maybe no one had actually ever asked that before, which was interesting in a world where wine people really pride themselves on knowing so many details about the hillside where the grapes for a wine were grown or the forgotten varietal that's been added to a blend or the precise shape of a particular winemaker's genealogical relationship to one of the great French winemakers. So. Today, we take a look at the changing wine industry through the eyes of people in our region who are working to make wine making and wine drinking more accessible to Mexican-Americans and everybody else. First up, we are joined by Lázaro Robledo, president of sales at Robledo Family Winery in Sonoma. Welcome, Lázaro.
3: Thank you, Alexis. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very uh, happy to be on here. Big fan. Oh,
0: awesome. It's great to have you. I mean, why don't we start talking about just your dad's story. Uh, Reynaldo came to the U.S. to work in ag in the 60s, right?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Reynaldo uh, Robledo uh, is originally from uh, Atacheo, Michoacan, uh, on the Sierra Madre Mountain Range. Um, He was inspired by his grandfather and father, who were braceros, who -hmm. came to Napa Valley in 1942 um, to work the agriculture industry. And uh, when he first came here in 1968, he fell in love with uh, Hillsburg, California, the Napa Valley. It reminded him a lot of Michoacan, and and he uh, made it his home. Um, it's not the hardest
0: place to fall in love
3: with, you know. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you know, at that time, I don't, I don't know if it was, but um, you know, it was uh, obviously undeveloped at that time with with vineyards. Uh, A lot of uh, apple pear orchards at that time.
0: Mm.
3: Yeah, and uh, he started uh, working off with the Christian brothers. And uh, that's where he knew that he loved the grapevines. You know, he uh, started uh, um, pruning vines uh, February 26. He could go back to that day where he started uh, pruning and uh, would... would, um, want to learn more about the vines and, uh, window work with a private landowner by the name of Frankie Barbera. Uh-huh. And, uh, Frankie Barbera took a liking to the 16 year old kid that worked 14 hours a day, seven days a week and said, "Ronaldo, I'm going to show you how to graft vines. And, uh, my father, uh, became a master grafter in his career working in the vineyards. Oh, wow. Uh, my family is known throughout the, uh, throughout the Napa, Sonoma, all the way to Bordeaux, France. In 1980s, he was sent to Bordeaux, France to show the French his grafting methods um, and um, always set himself some goals. Um, my dad uh, was very ambitious of, of owning his own plot of land to grow his own grapes, um, started purchasing land in 1984. Started yeah, wait,
0: hold 30. on. Ray- Uh Lester, I just want to you know what's crazy about this story is that there's actually there's many people in ag who are Mexican American who kind of have some some piece of this story, right? Like they fell in love with Napa or Sonoma, they you know get really good at the different uh, components of viticulture. What do you think allowed your dad to sort of make the turn in a way that many other Mexican Americans have not been able to? uh, You know, to become an owner rather than than a worker.
3: Um, I think coming from a big family. He's the oldest out of 13. Um, it was his responsibility as the oldest brother to, to you know, care for his younger siblings. And um, he started a family with my mother in 1970. There's nine of us. So not only did he have a big family on his on his sibling side, but he started having a big family of his own. And uh, I think that was his motivation is is familia. And Mm. if you know about the Latino culture, you know, we put our family first, you know, nothing, nothing uh, goes in between that family bond. And I think that was his motivation.
0: Mm. And I mean, your family now, you're multiple generations in, right? I mean, he establishes this winery and now you, you all kind of grew up in it, like making wine from kind of soil to bottle.
3: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We all, uh. With the thirteen acres that that we first established of Pinot Noir and Rancho Rincón is the name of the ranch, mm-hmm. uh, historical name given to the to the land in the 1800s when Metrico owned that that mm-hmm. parcel of Los Carneros. Um, every all of my eight siblings and I, we all had a uh, six rows of grapes, and each row was uh, about a mile long. Um, and that's where my father showed us how to uh, have um, a very strong work ethic and, and have responsibility and help one another. If um, one of us fell behind, you know, we would go out and, and, and catch them up. And, and Oh, my do God. Our, wait! So uh, <laughs>
0: you each actually had like six mile long rows of grapes that that was like yours. Like you had to tend that and make sure that those grapes were were ready to go into wine.
3: Yes. So from pruning suckering, leafing, um, training the vine, um, uh, you know, all the way to, you know, to the harvest day, we were there with those six rows. Those were our babies and we didn't like it at the time, but now (laughs) I look back and I go, man, I'm so happy. My dad did that, you know, looking at, at my kids and giving them their, um, their chores and and bringing them out to the vineyard you know i'm telling them right now i go don't worry you you grow to love it <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah they're like sure dad um, yeah. <laughs> you know uh you're well you know all wineries in northern california i mean all wineries around the world uh whether they're owned by mexican americans or not are dealing with the effects of of climate change right i mean many things have stayed the same uh in the valley many things are, are, are changing though I mean how are you seeing that show up like with the wines that you can produce there
3: well climate change is, is is huge you know um farming we have to we have to work with mother nature we adapt to mother nature um you know um last year we got hit with a with a record-breaking heat wave you know right now we're, we're getting uh, a rain there's um definitely a watch you know my dad taught me to look at least three to four times a day at the weather for the next week <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh so yeah he implanted that in us and and you know we we now have all the technology that you know could forecast a week or two but how they did it back in the day I I can't yeah. imagine you know um you know uh, waking up uh, with frost you know um, during, during this time of year is when we're fighting frost. And mm-hmm. as you can see with the weather that we've been having here in Northern California, our Lake County properties, um, got at least a foot of snow, you know, oh, where, where we got snow damage on our olive farm. You know, my, my family also has an olive farm, uh, grown now and, and our olive trees snapped in half from the snow weight. So there's nothing you could do sometimes, you know, when mother nature comes and, and, you know, deals you a, a, a storm like that. Um, But luckily enough, right now, the grapes are dormant and um, you know, we use um, frost protection, which is um, the big fans that you see in the vineyards. If you drive through Napa Valley, they, they kind of look like windmills. Uh Um, We use those for frost protection, but I remember back in the day, when I was younger, we used to have smudge pots, uh, diesel smudge pots, and in what was we, that we, like? I don't even know what that is. So, so there were these the, these smudge pots that were about five feet tall, and on the bottom, um, it was kind of like a candle, uh, an old uh, oil candle, but with diesel. And you would have to manually turn one each of them on with a torch, with a blowtorch. Huh. And as i was mentioning to you we had six rows uh so six mile long rows that we would have to go in, and turn on um during frost and that usually comes at one in the morning two in the morning oh, so before, before school we would have to go in there and, and do it and i remember sometimes you know um it illuminating all the vineyard and and wow. after it's all it's all lit um we would have we would have this just majestic view of of the frost you know trying to land but the the uh fire burning it down and and heating up the vines and that way we don't get uh frost bite on our new blooming uh bud break. Yeah.
0: Oh man. Was- so cool to talk with you Lazaro about just like the I mean, you clearly grew up in this business through and through. Um, is your father still involved in the business at this point?
3: Yes, my father is uh, seventy-one years young, uh, still very active. Um, you know, he's uh, developing still vineyards. Right now, we're 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 at the point where we're replanting a lot of our vineyards that we put in thirty years ago. So as the vineyard hits. We're, we're we're mostly grape growers that's our our main company is robledo ranches where we sell our grapes to other wineries mm-hmm. and, uh my father um right now is pulling out the old vines planting new vines um and starting the process all over um and um it's it's awesome to see that you know my dad's like a 37 year old guy, just like myself. And, and <laughs> he's nonstop. Um, and he's just full of, of, of knowledge. You know, my dad, yeah. still to this day, I always tell him, I go, dad, you never shared this with me. And he goes, son, I can't share all my secrets with you guys. Cause then you won't need me anymore. <laughs> but he's still got a lot of uh, tricks up his sleeve and, and a lot of methods that he's used, uh, that have brought him this far, you know, I this is, uh, he's coming on his 50, 53rd harvest wow. in uh, Napa Sonoma Valley. So that's he's uh, definitely a, a, uh, very, a legend uh, man. A legend. Yeah. yeah. That, that's-
0: We're talking with about how Mexican winemakers are reshaping the state's wine industry. We've got Lázaro Robledo with us, president of sales at Robledo Family winery in sonoma um we've got actually a picture of his dad who's been talking about on our instagram and on that instagram richard writes that his favorite mexican winemaker is in fact the robledo family winery in sonoma great wine and the founder and family patriarch is super sweet and kind every time we've met him i'm alexis magical stay tuned for more right after the break Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Mexican winemakers who are reshaping the state's wine industry. Joined this morning by Lázaro Robledo, a president of sales at Robledo Family Winery in Sonoma. We're going to add some people to the conversation in just a sec, but first we want to hear from you. I mean, wine remains intimidating to many people, even here in the Bay Area where we make some of the best wines in the world. If you're in the industry, do you think it's gotten more inclusive? Or just by the nature of wine, is it destined to remain kind of an exclusive world? Love to hear from you. The number is 866 6786 That's 866-733-6786. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Want to add in Gabriela Fernandez, host of the Big Sip podcast, she also curates uh, events for the Duckhorn portfolio. Welcome to the show, Gabby.
6: Good morning, Buenos dias. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So good to have you here. Um, so I, you were born and raised in Napa. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the history of wine in Napa and sort of Latinos' contribution to that?
5: Yeah, absolutely.
6: I, I think it's a very rich story. I, I also think it's it's hard to group everyone into one narrative. Um, something that I I always love to express to people is, you know, we're, the story of Latinos and Hispanics, specifically Mexican Americans in Napa, is is not a monolith, right? There's yeah. so many different ways of how everyone everyone's gotten involved. I myself, first generation American, uh, but my dad did immigrate here and he started off in the vineyards slowly working his way up. And for those who, who tuned in earlier and were listening to Lazaro, you know, really incredible to hear him talk about how his father came here through the Bracero program, which, um, you know, even if we go back to the 1940s, uh, a lot of people don't think about this really rich often forgotten, often excluded narrative of why wine country, uh, let alone just the agricultural economy, especially in California, is as abundant as it is. And, and a lot of that has to do with um, with that Bracero program. Um, so just thinking about the history there, especially for people who might not know, um, it was really a, a Mexican farm labor program that uh, the United States had with Mexico It permitted Mexicans to come work on on short-term labor contracts. And and the primary basis for this was... uh the United States wanted to ensure that the U.S. economy could remain afloat during World War II, right? And so you've had a lot of Mexican farm workers coming, not just farms, but railroads, factories, um, and and there's sort of this uh, story of struggle, but also success. You know, oftentimes you don't have one without the other. And so, you know, you did hear about people suffering racial wage discrimination, mm-hmm. subpar living conditions, as well as working conditions. Uh, obviously, if you if you know the history of farm workers in, in California, yeah, right. you know that Césarque Chavez, uh, highly, highly pioneered, um, obviously unionization when it comes to farm workers. And so we had some positive outcomes from there. Um, but trajectory wise, you had a lot of Mexican immigrants coming to United to the United States because of this program, um, it went away for a portion of a time. Right. It wasn't meant to be a, this long term contract. So by about 1964, things ended. Um, and then there was sort of this. Uh, of course, the drive for, for- to bring
0: in Mexican agricultural labor never, has never ended in California to date. Um, but you're right. that That particular program. Yeah.
6: Right, exactly. Which leads to my next point, which was, you know, there was a a pilot program after that because there was obviously complaints, right? Well, Mexicans are taking away workers from American individuals. And so there was this thing called the A-Team, which was essentially a program that was supposed to happen right after... The Bracero program formally ended in 1964, um, and it was where American high school athletes were going to be utilized and given an opportunity to essentially do the work, or the work that, that farm workers had been doing during the Bracero program. Um, as you can imagine, it, it didn't survive. <laughs> um, there were many, many individuals who were like, this is backbreaking work. I don't want to do this. They didn't have the number of people that they intended to actually register. And so you still started to see, especially a lot of the uh, people who own those agricultural lands saying, there is no way my farm is going to survive. And and that's when you started to see a lot of undocumented Mexican immigrants coming because they sort of went around this formalized process which was that that bracero yeah. program and so obviously now you have an influx of immigration um with some undocumented people later a, a, a lot of documentation was supported and happened through a, a wide variety of people that you know would would be a whole other conversation Yeah, to yeah, 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 um, yeah, but it really led to again this economy that started to thrive off of the backbone of Mexican-American mm-hmm. farm workers yeah. um, and as well as their their children. So, you know, Lázaro is, is a product of his father being here through the Bracero program. Um, and, and that over the last, you know, going back to 1940, I think what the trajectory of that growth has really looked like, it's been driven by the education, right? That a lot of, I think of, of myself as well as Lázaro, given opportunities to go and get educated unlike maybe some of our family members who immigrated here. A lot of us also having that entrepreneurial spirit wanting to see how can I go ahead and make something of you know the opportunities that I've been given. And then naturally as well, the, the population growth that California has seen, um, obviously favorable demographics. Hispanics are now considered the largest race in California based off of the most recent census. Um, and more people even across the United States identify as as diverse individuals and so i think there's all of these different factors that play into um the story of not only agriculture but then when we mm-hmm. specifically look into wine country why wine country has really had that growth um, and, yeah. and it's important for us to to bring in that narrative right and to not let that that narrative and that really rich cultural history of of the impact that latinos and mexican farm workers vineyard stewards as, as i also love to call mm-hmm. them as i learned from my friend Sampara, from the aivoy program um that we want to make sure that that we can continue to tell those stories because that's that's where the, the richness of of wine uh, when you're enjoying it at your table and you taste that beautiful glass there are so many hands and so much history that that mm-hmm. went into that and it's really beautiful to to honor that uh,
0: gabriel i know that you've organized a lot of different events and also thank you for that beautiful pocket history i appreciate that um but some of these conversations that you've tried to organize in uh, the wine country have tried to bring in the people who are tending the vines into that the the what was it vineyard stewards the vineyard stewards mm-hmm. into stewards these the conversations land. yeah i mean how did that go do people feel like they can participate in those conversations or is their kind of labor situation too precarious for them to be able to really bring their knowledge you know to the fore in that way
6: No, great question. And it kind of speaks to earlier when you asked people to chime in on, you know, if the industry is really diversifying and becoming more inclusive. I think it depends on your privilege. If I'm giving you a a clear cut answer, if you are privileged enough to have your own business, perhaps you're a little less scared or frightened to speak out about certain things, especially the position that you have in the market is a favorable one right um if you are not let's say uh, a documented individual or you're not first generation or there are certain things that don't afford you the same privileges as maybe some other mexican americans you might be a little bit more hesitant and that's definitely something that i've encountered um, with my co-creators, Hispanics and Wine, I, I put together a Latinx Wine Summit. And one of the seminar panels that we've done year to year has been focused around the voices in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. And as we tried reaching out to certain people of all backgrounds in the vineyard, right, you have your mayadomos, people who are in, in charge more of that leadership role as well as people who, you know, just a day to day are living in farm worker housing and, and experiencing um, the actual day ins and day outs of, of farm working. Uh, you have a wide variety of responses. Some people who, for example, this year we had Daniela Bassan. Her grandpa also came here through the Baracero program and started Bassan Cellars uh, previous to him actually having that wine label he had his own vineyard management company and before even that he was just you know a farm worker or vineyard steward. Um, and so she's very comfortable now as a third generation talking about what that history looks like. but when I approached other individuals, there's almost this fear of repercussions of what is it going to be like if I put my face and my name out there? You know, is that going to somehow look negative upon the person who I mm-hmm. am working for right. and, and put my job in jeopardy? You know, a, a lot of people, especially our, our farm workers and our vineyard stewards, um, if they have family back home, they're directly supporting them. So they can't afford to financially put themselves in a position where they might lose out on income. They might lose out on a job opportunity. And uh, equally, we, we would never want anybody to feel um, like they're they're potentially putting themselves at risk simply yeah. for for speaking out on these issues. So I think it's a it's a kind of a fine line that you have to walk on. Um, but, you know, always, always great when you can hear people talk about the ins and outs of this economy and the things that have really led to some positive growth, but also the challenges that I think yeah. still exist, especially as it relates to um, the the physical vineyard labor
0: force. Yeah. Hey, last before one more before we let you go. I mean, how do you think Robledo approaches agricultural labor and the work that goes into it? Given that your father and you have this direct experience, you know, of working with these vines.
3: How do we approach the 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 work? The, well, yeah, do you like we...
0: just yeah the labor that's needed? Like, do you think it's
3: different for you all because you've you've really lived it? Well, we 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 still use h2a workers we go back to the Bracero still you know we bring workers uh with a work visa from Metacoda to to tackle um the work that's still out there um you know we we have a crew here um that is uh based here that are local um, um workers but we bring um anywhere from from eight to to 15 workers with a visa that help us, uh, um, you know, bring the work to, to, uh, fruition. Uh, we, uh, we have, um, uh, housing for them here in, uh, Sonoma Valley and up in Lake County. And, and, you know, we can't do it without them, you know, um, it, it's, it's truly a blessing that we're able to use that. This will be our, I think our eighth, uh, no, our ninth season that we're using them.
0: Yeah. That's great. All right. Thank you, uh, Lázaro Robledo, president of sales at Robledo Family Winery in Sonoma. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Um, Let's bring in another winemaker. We've got Monica Lopez, co-founder of Aldina Vineyards in Healdsburg. Welcome.
2: Hi there. How how are you guys?
0: Doing well. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, So, Monica, I have been told that my favorite childhood magazine might be related <laughs> to the founding of Aldina Vineyards. Maybe you could spin that out for us a little bit. Where where did this uh where did this company come from?
2: Yep. Uh so in the late 80s my parents um they purchased Loirer magazine um, from the original owner and we We were living in Fremont at the time, moved to Southern California, where really that lowrider culture was Mm -hmm. the hub. It was really in Los Angeles. And so we spent about a decade in the LA area. um, And my parents decided that they would sell the magazine uh, to a publishing house in New York, and they would retire in wine countries. So our wine narrative is a little bit different. Um, So When they retired in wine country in the late 90s, you know, they were retired from from their previous, you know, life. And so they wanted to start something new and romanticize the idea of having a vineyard and purchased a 40 acre property up Mark West Springs Road in Santa Rosa. And my dad wanted to, uh, plant a vineyard and it would be of his favorite varietal, which is Cabernet. Mm -hmm. And, um, he planted the vineyard in 1999 and then followed, um, by going to a viticulture program at the local junior college here in Santa Rosa and, you know, learned how to tend to, to his vineyard. So. Once, uh, once he started producing fruit uh, he was selling to different vintners for about a decade before my brother Francisco and I decided that we would launch eldina Vineyards um, and Alberto Al is our father and Dina is our mother and that is Eldina
0: uh, <laughs> I love that um, let's take uh, a call here. Uh, we've got a Jim up in Napa welcome.
7: Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for having me on.
0: Thanks for joining us. Uh,
7: so I just wanted to call, uh, just make an observation or call out. Um, Arkenstone, uh, which is a winery in Napa, under the leadership of Sam Kaplan, has uh, mentored Robo- Roberto Alfaro. And, uh, and, and, and Roberto is a Mexican-American Mexican- And um, Sam himself is a premier winemaker. He makes a wine called Memento Mori that's well-recognized. And I I think the the, the observation I want to make is there's a challenge to have the initial conversation for somebody to say, I want to be mentored. Mm -hmm. And Roberto took that step, and he opened up so many doors, and and obviously Sam was um, receptive to it. And now Roberto has his own wine label, Erador Wine. Um, but my point is, that, you know, the, the challenge is just to cross that chasm,
0: to have that conversation, because I think a lot of people want to help each other out. They just don't know how to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. And here's a, this is a case where it's very successful. And I, you know what I like about that? I mean, at least my understanding of the wine industry is that so much of this industry is about the networks that people create within it right I mean it's all these like genealogies of winemakers and vineyard tenders and and all of these uh kinds of things so I really appreciate that Jim I mean Gabriel do you want to talk about that just like what it is that you're trying to develop um with the work that you're doing kind of like organizing people in the industry to help kind of create these mentorship networks and and opportunities
6: Absolutely. And I really appreciate that comment that was made. I, you know, I I don't know if very many people are aware, but there's an actual foundation that's dedicated to a lot of this mentorship and craftsmanship called the Farmworker Foundation put on by the Napa Valley Vintners. It's a a branch of that, or it might be the Napa Valley Great Growers. Um, Don't want to misspeak out there. One or the other. (laughs) Great, great work being done. Nonprofit organization, though. Um, And they really curate some programming for a lot of the vineyard stewards so that they have access to some of these mentorship classes. They can continue to have that career advancement and mobility. I mean, anybody, right? You don't have to just be speaking about wine, but anybody who kind of starts off in a certain job hopes to have some kind of upward career mobility. Um, It's kind of the, you know, progressive. Progressive goal making, um, so that's something really great. When it comes to the the Latinx wine sum that I was speaking about earlier, that I co founded with Hispanics in Wine and Uncorked and Cultured, we really created that as a network to one allow for there to be representation and visibility around the historical narrative that has taken place for Latinos of all backgrounds in the wine industry, and then two create a space where if we're all coming together. Uh, there's this refrain, this phrase in Spanish, it's called Juntos Podemos, which together we can. Mm-hmm. And I really firmly, wholeheartedly believe in that. I feel like when people are, again, able to make those connections and able to know, hey, I might have access to this resource and you might have access to another resource and we kind of need each other, we're now able to uplift one another, right? There's a, another phrase, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> and so it's this this concept that if we really create a community and in the key word in, in the word community is that unity aspect where we're really coming together to support and uplift one another. We're going to be able to create a different trajectory, hopefully create a new pipeline for other people to feel comfortable to ask those questions and hopefully create yeah. those spaces. Um, and and we got to see that in the first Latinx Wine Summit that we did, definitely the second one that took place last December um, and that's for all people of different aspects of, of the wine industry, you know, not just farm workers, as well as vineyard owners, anybody in production and but seller, in got yeah. marketing executives. Absolutely. The, the wine industry is so big. Yeah.
0: Um, we have a great uh, comment from the co-owner of MCV Wines in Paso Robles. Uh, It's Teresa Villar. She says, I became interested in wine because I enjoyed talking about wine. That's really it. I enjoy wine in general. And then somebody said, like, you know, you can become a sommelier and continue working at restaurants and becoming a wine buyer. But I felt like I didn't want to work at a restaurant for the rest of my days. I needed to be social. And so I ended up working part time for the winery tasting room and then as a tasting room manager. And then that's where I really felt like, oh, this is what suits me. Now I run MCV with my husband, Matt, who's the winemaker. I'm definitely seeing more Latinos in the wine industry. Now when I go to events, if I see a Latino winemaker, I have to get their card. And when you look overall at who are the owners and who are the actual winemakers in the industry, the percentage of women is actually very low. So when I met Nancy Loa of Loa Cellars, it was an easy gravitation because we're both uh, women. We are talking about the Mexican-American winemakers who are reshaping the state's wine industry. Patrick wants to recognize the great Ulysses Valdez. He became one of the great vineyard managers of the wine country. He also owned the Valdez Family Winery in Cloverdale until his untimely death at 49 in 2018. Now his wife and children are wine dynasty and all over the valley. One of the nicest guys I ever met. We'll be back with more from Mexican-American winemakers reshaping the state's wine industry. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Mexican-American winemakers who are reshaping the wine industry here in the Bay Area. We're joined by Gabriela Fernandez. She's the host of the Big Sip podcast and creates lifestyle and educational events for the Duckhorn Portfolio. Earlier, we were joined by Lázaro Robledo of Robledo Family Winery in Sonoma. And we've got Monica Lopez, co-founder of Aldina Vineyards in Hildsburg. And we want to add one more voice to the show. Uh Christopher Rivera, owner and winemaker of Seisoles Wine Company based in Lodi.
1: Welcome. Buenos dias, everybody. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so good to so good to have you. You know, Chris, why don't you tell us your journey? I mean, one of the things Gabby was saying earlier is, you know, there's not a there's not one path for Mexican Americans into the wine industry. So give us yours.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. My parents are from uh, Chocan, Mexico. I'm born and raised in Modesto, Central Valley. So we, all my family, we all deal in almonds. Um, and I wanted to be a physical therapist. So I was <laughs> going to take an entry-level job at a winery and fell in love. I was just dragging hoses and fell in love with the idea of wine because I was never exposed to it growing up. We never had it at the home. So that was around 2014. So I jumped over to Lodi, took an entry-level job. And, uh, just started working my way up, did the Davis thing and, um, worked my the way. The Davis thing racing. in this case being the viticulture program, right? Like, yeah, we... sorry about that. UC Davis Vitic- viticulture and enology program. So, um, I-, I, got the foundational knowledge, but you know, the most important thing was just years of putting my hands on grapes. And so I, I, I kind of cut my teeth at a, a family owned winery in Lodi, um, learned from their head winemaker. And then about th- two and a half years ago, launched say sodas for my own So, Yeah.
0: You know, earlier we uh, we heard from a caller who um, wanted to talk about those kind of like mentorship networks. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what has it been like uh, out in Lodi? Have all the winemakers been, you know, equally happy to share their knowledge? Have some been more supportive or less? Like, how has that gone for you?
1: Yeah, you know what? It's funny. I went there with a chip on my shoulder, just kind of growing in the Central Valley and working in agriculture. You always hear a bunch of just kind of rude talk from folks. But uh, what I found was that, Although I didn't necessarily get like a warm reception. It had nothing to do with any of my like identity kind of markers. It had to do with, are you an outsider? Do you really care about Lodi? Do you care about the land? Do you care about the wine that comes from here? Mm-hmm. So it took time for them to like understand like, hey, you, you do care about what's going on here. Uh, and then a lot of avenues kind of opened up for me. Um, a lot of us in Lodi kind of stick to our own winery and we work really hard and do our own thing. So uh, I was fortunate enough that at the Brick Family Win- Winery in Lodi, they have a Belizean winemaker named Joseph Smith, Uh and he was very open. He said, hey, if you're interested in learning how to make wine, just do what I need you to do, and then I'm going to give you these extra things, and you're going to build your way up, and, and I'm going to teach you everything I know. So um, that's um that's a big part of why I was able to do and why I go forward. I want to pass it forward, you know? Yeah.
0: You know, one of our listeners, Lori, writes in to say, you know, being of moderate income, I've never entertained drinking wine as anything other than a treat for special occasions. Having heard of wines costing less than $15 a bottle referred to as rot gut doesn't exactly make it sound appealing or affordable. You know, Monica Lopez, I thought maybe you could, you know, take this one on. Like, this is obviously a a common feeling people have. Some wines can be extremely expensive. Um, How do you think about sort of cultivating people who maybe don't feel like they can afford wine.
2: Yeah. So I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying originally and how the wine industry can sometimes be this intimidating, um, industry where people don't feel necessarily comfortable with trying wines and going wine tasting and,
8: um,
2: really having that ability. But, you know, I think price points are absolutely important, but I think that there's beautiful wines that are being made, um, you know, just across the board, whether that's, you know, Californian or even worldwide. Um, and there's some affordable wines that are delicious that you can get even Costco, Trader Joe's, um, you know, it, but it's just really having that knowledge of of what is actually out there and really getting yourself out there to try different wines and have different experiences and even just go on an adventure of what it is that you like, what varietals you like. Um, and so I always try to encourage, you know, people that are just kind of getting into wine to really go out there and try to experience um, wine as a whole. You know, I think that the the whole wine tasting experience has changed, um, especially during the, the time of COVID where, um, you know, now everything is reservation-based. But, you know, there's still these wineries out there that um, you can really have a wonderful, great experience at, at a lower cost. And so, um, you know, Sonoma County is a a little bit different than perhaps Napa Valley, but, you know, when we opened our doors um, at Bacchus Landing, um, which is a winery collective where there's multiple wineries at this one location, it was really to, to give these boutique wineries an opportunity to have a brick and mortar and for, and really focus on the wine and what they have to offer. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it's interesting that there are still opportunities for folks to kind of get out there and, and learn about wine in different ways.
0: We're talking about Mexican-American winemakers reshaping the state's wine industry. And we'd love to hear from you. I mean, what are some of your favorite Mexican-American or BIPOC-owned wine brands or varieties... And how'd you find him? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The emails forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. or KQED Forum. Uh, let's get to another call. Uh, Peter in Davis, welcome. Hi. Thank
7: you very much. So My name is Peter Brantley, and I'm with the UC Davis Library. And with the Robert Mandavi Institute, we put on an a ongoing speaker series called Saver, which concerns itself with policy issues confronting California agriculture. And on March 17th, we will be hosting a program called Viticulturas, Mexican-American Perspectives on Grapes, Community, and Resilience. It's a program focusing on Mexican-American professionals, in the vineyards, and the contributions that they've made to the California wine industry. The panel that we'll be hosting will be moderated by our guest, Stephen Zalasquez of the Smithsonian Institution, who's written widely on Mexican-American contributions to agriculture and to the wine industry. So we invite our listeners to participate. We'll have program information up by this weekend on the website saver.ucdavis.edu. It's mm-hmm. a free program available on Zoom. So we welcome the broadest possible audience. Cool.
0: All right, that's March 17th. Uh, I'm sure if you go to the Robert Mondavi uh, Institute website, over the next couple of weeks, you'll be able to see info on that. Thanks so much for that, Peter. I think that's like a, a lot of people listening to this might be interested um, in that. Um, Chris Rovetta, owner and winemaker of Say Solis Wine Company. Yeah, I mean, your labels, you kind of lean into... Um, the Latinidad, you go, you have this kind of the Mesoamerican kind of uh, calendar on the wine label, you know, from Aztec calendar uh, with a little spin. It's not like a direct reprint. Um, what is it like trying to cultivate, you know, maybe a, a different set of, of wine drinkers from the the normal, you know, uh, stereotype of, you know, um, a non-Mexican-American person
1: you know what that's exactly why i launched Ace the whole idea was that um i was seeing that people latinos were wine curious but not necessarily feeling like the wine industry is wanting to talk to them uh wine spaces weren't really beckoning them in so i thought i'm gonna launch my brand and as a chicano i always love that kind of imagery and my mm-hmm. experience has been up and down the state incredibly positive people are very much like yeah i'm curious about wine but i never felt comfortable putting myself in that position where i can taste it and so let's do what i'm doing I'm putting imagery that I like, I'm making styles and price points that I think are accessible to Latinos, and I'm going up and down the state to them, because not everybody can afford uh, uh, a wine weekend in in wine country, right? So I'm trying to make it more accessible, Um, and I think we're all just solving different problems within the Latino community, right? Like Gabriela said earlier, we're not a monolith, so the approaches are not going to be the same, so we kind of welcome all these different approaches, but... My experience has been overly uh, positive. I mean, I'm pouring at car club shows. I've had some big bottles come up and they're like, what's up with that rosé, bro? And I'm like, well, let me go and pour it for you. And uh, they're leaving with bottles, you know, these big old big dudes. And um, it's very interesting. So I've had a very good reception and I've poured in very non-traditional spaces. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome.
0: Let's, uh, let's go to uh, Lorraine in uh, Oakland. Welcome.
8: Hi, good morning. I have one recommendation for a really good uh, African-American-owned wine, uh, winery, or called Brown, and they're in Napa Valley. And then I have a question. Um, I'd really like to know what's a good uh, Latino wine that is uh, a good uh, sparkling wine or a white Sauvignon Blanc? Have any recommendations?
0: Mm, I love that. All right, let's um, let's make a rule, Monica and Chris. You can't recommend your own. Uh, Gabby can recommend your wise, but you can't recommend your own. And let's just go go around the horn, uh, starting with Monica.
2: Okay. So without re- recommending um, my okay, own you
0: can recommend mine. your own. You can recommend your own. That's fine.
2: Um, I mean, I personally you know, have tried all of um, our Mava members' wine. I, you know, Lazaro I know is still on the call and I love Robledo's wines. Um, They both make a sparkling and uh, Sauvignon Blanc. So um, I have yet to try Christopher's wine. So I I hope to do so soon. Um, And of course-
1: I'll I'll have to
2: fix that. (laughs) Yeah. And of course I do recommend Aldina's Sauvignon Blanc. Um, We do not make a sparkling wine, so. Good, good.
1: Chris? Yeah, so um, interestingly enough, Gabriela, maybe you can help me with this if she's still on the line. There's uh, sisters in Napa that put together their brand. They have a sparkling. Um, I tasted it at um, a, an event, but I don't remember the name.
6: Las Amigas Cuvée. Ah, There we go. <laughs> yes, it's owned by Miriam Puentes of Onrama Cellars and Lola Llamas from Yamas Family Wines. They're actually the first Latinas ever to co-collaborate and make a sparkling wine, which is pretty surprising. Uh, it's 2023, and, and we're still getting first <laughs> around the world.
0: Oh, I love it. Las Amigas Cuvée, for those uh, who are listening. Lorraine, that sounds that sounds perfect for you. Also, quick note, yes. uh, MAVA is the Mexican-American Vintners Association, for people who uh, were wondering about that. Gabriel, you haven't given us your recommendation, though, for, uh, yeah. for a white.
6: Yeah, so uh, thanks, Chris, for mentioning Las Amigas. I was definitely going to mention that. Chris's wine is also great. I love Robledo. Monica, will definitely have to come taste some Aldina vineyards. Um, but if you're looking for sparkling, or you also mentioned Sauvignon Blanc, um If you're looking for really great, unique white wine bridals like Sauvignon Blanc or, you know, Gruner Vettliner, Semillon, uh, Nancy Ulloa from Ulloa Cellars out in Paso Robles makes some incredible, incredible white wine. She only focuses on unique white wine bridals, and she is one of the first Latina winemakers out in Paso Robles. So really, really great to um, go support her as well.
0: That's cool. Um, Let's take another call. Let's go to uh, Jake in Kentfield. Welcome, Jake.
8: Hi, uh yeah, it's it's David. My apologies. Oh, oh, um, sorry about that. Yeah, I give wine tours of the uh both Napa and Sonoma areas and uh, we see different types of wineries in the two areas. The Sonoma tours that we do tend to have more uh, family-oriented wineries, uh wineries that are owned and operated by by a family uh that are still actually in house behind the counters, uh mm-hmm. visible everywhere and the Napa tours uh, tend to be places that have been managed in a corporate context oftentimes the wines are much more highly uh let's say uh, priced refined in terms of the blend in terms of uh the uh, descriptions and also of course the uh price points and uh, what I wanted to say was that there seems to be t- Basically, two markets uh, for people who are interested in wine uh, and people who are trying to get to know wine. And the, the family wineries are still out there and highly recommended. We get great reactions to those. Uh, people from the local area like to go to these places that have the much more uh, you know, highly targeted, uh, highly developed sometimes uh, varietals. And and that's that's a base, the basic difference. So you have yeah. two kinds of wine tourists out there, and you still have lots of uh, great family wineries. And that's mm. my recommendation for people yeah. who are just trying to to get into the uh, the whole culture is yeah. uh, target some family wineries for your visits and uh, go to those first uh, rather than the places that uh, you can tell by the descriptions are corporated out. Uh, you know, come out of a corporate context. Yeah. So that's oh, my hey. comment.
0: David and uh, Kenfield, really appreciate it. That's a, that's a good tip. I mean, Gabriela, you probably see this a lot too, right, that there are major differences between the larger corporate operations which, which operate here in Northern California and, you know, the kind of swa- smaller winemakers who encounter, no matter, you know, what their ethnicity or race, encounter these problems of kind of being the little, the little person.
6: Yeah, I think that's a great observation. You know, there are a lot of smaller producers as well in Napa, but, you know, having traveled to both, you can tell the difference. Napa does sometimes tend to have that much larger corporate focus um, or, or people who have definitely now through generations built up some kind of conglomerate uh, where Sonoma really operates on that smaller producer, even if they're making tons and tons of cases, right? It it still feels like it's that family-run and and operated um, place. Um, To your question earlier around exploring and finding different wines, I think that's something exciting. You know, when you can go to places like Sonoma that focus more on those family-run operated establishments, you not only get to meet people and, and hear those stories firsthand from them uh, but it gives you another great opportunity to be exposed to some of those wines regardless of what whatever your background is um and and you can find that a- across all of california and even outside of california oregon has some really great wine growing regions with a lot of amazing incredible latino winemakers and producers paso robles uh even outside of the united states you get some Lola. really really great wines coming <laughs> out of southern america um so it's just it's it's exciting to always explore. And having been born and raised from from Napa, you know, I, I definitely love my Napa wine. Mm-hmm. But one of the most exciting things about wine is it's you know this agricultural product that is such an expansive world. You can constantly learn new things, not only about grape varietals but about places and how soil is going to impact a different flavor profile and. And if you're solely focused on finding things that are palatable for for your own taste buds, well, that's that's the journey is kind of discovering what else exists out there that aligns with what you what you appreciate.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, Monica and Christopher, maybe you just give us one great recommendation of a wine from anywhere by
1: anyone that you just love. Maybe no, we'll go. I'll go first. Yeah, Chris, go ahead. I'll go first. Yeah. You know what? I'm so sorry. I had to take this opportunity just to encourage people to know that there's other regions. There's Lodi. There's Amador. There's Livermore. There's Temecula. Uh, up and down the Central Valley along the 99 corridor, people are actually getting a lot better at making wine. So I encourage people to get out in your own communities. There's wine there. Go look. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, I like I like it.
0: I li- and it's a it's a good point. I mean, a lot of the smaller winemakers that I know, they they end up in those places because that's kind of where where it's easier to get going. Monica, how about you?
2: So. <clears throat> I would say my recommendation would be um, let's see, my God, there's so many. But I will actually speak to um a winery nearby. It's Batchkaloopy. Um, this is a family run and operated uh winery who are doing fantastic things, mostly woman run as well, which is also extremely unique. Um and they, you know, similar to us, where we also have a female winemaker, which to me is also extremely important um, in regards to representation. But um, you know, these family-run wineries are are amazing. So, yeah. um, and then in terms of a Latino-run uh, winery nearby, our neighbors, uh, Guerrero Fernandez, which. Are making spectacular wines, and they have a small tasting room in Windsor, and if you ever have the opportunity to go and visit them, I highly recommend um, them as well. beautiful.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Listener Doug wants to give a shout-out to the documentary Harvest Season, which focuses on uh, Latinos in the California wine industry. We've been talking about Mexican-American winemakers reshaping the industry with Gabriela Fernandez, host of the Big Sip podcast. Monica Lopez, co-founder of Aldina Vineyards in Healdsburg, and Christopher Rivetta, owner and winemaker of Seis Solis Wine Company. Earlier we were joined by Lazaro Robledo. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos
4: Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation.